Welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. Joining me today is Marco Albani, who's co-founder and CEO of Chloris Geospatial. Welcome to the podcast, Marco. Well, thank you, Ian. Happy to be here. Let's start with a bit of background context to Chloris Geospatial. Why was the business established and what are your aims? Alessandro Baccini and myself have been working in the space around the whole issue of how do we actually change the way we use land to store more carbon and how do we get more nature conservation and so on. And one thing that I had found in, in my work was that actually, in many cases, we didn't really know what was going on, that the data was an issue. And of course, things were improving. We had Global Forest Watch coming out on the scene. And so we're learning a lot of things. But it seemed to me that there was a lot of space and need for better understanding actually on the impact that all these activities were having on the actual carbon storage in vegetation. And Alessandro had been working on that for 20 years as a scientist that had developed very interesting technology using remote sensing data to directly estimate the storage of carbon in vegetation, in woody vegetation, in forests, kind of around the time where COVID was happening and everything was in turmoil, we got talking about turning this into an activity, changing our lives and starting this business together. And then we roped in Mark Friedel as a professor at Boston University and Giulio Boccaletti used to be chief strategy officer at TNC to help us. And we started this company. The idea was really to use the science that Alessandro had been working on, but also beyond that. So what others are also doing to produce a stream of data on the state of natural capital that would be produced at the scale and the speed of business and actually usable by business as business was starting to take responsibility and try to understand its impact on nature and vegetation and natural capital it needs actually an accounting system in its measurement and so we thought that we could do like this kind of bloomberg for nature i think was one of the early ideas that we had when we started chloris so how do we measure natural capital in a way that is reliable is scalable it's fast and it really gets to the bottom of what people are trying to do and, and trying to understand their impact on. There's a definite sense, I think, that businesses with impacts on ecosystems and natural capital are recognising those impacts and the need for them to take a more nature-positive approach. How, in general, then, is technology adapting to help them? I think what we're seeing right now is two things. On one hand, we have a deployment of a variety of new and different sensors that are coming online, be they space-borne, land-borne, airborne sensors, and so on. On the other, we have a growing investment in creating ways to use these sensors to create reliable data that can be deployed at scale, so over, over very large areas, because the size of the problem is global, and also over long periods of time, so that we can actually have a view of what's happening, what the baselines are, how things are changing in a way that is reliable and trustworthy over many areas. I like to think that we're at the forefront of that. We just released our 20 year, 22 years actually uh, above ground biomass stock and change data product. Of course, there are others working in this space. It's tough because as sensors improve, you don't know what's going on in the past necessarily. You can't send them back in time. So yes, new sensors are helpful because they allow us to see things that we couldn't see before, but we have a lot of information to mine from the old sensors that can also give us a sense of how things have been happening in the past. It's also a market that has largely been financed by venture capital, 
and venture capital is going through some very difficult times. There's been really a euphoria of climate tech follow now by a period of some deep problems and the epitome was the Silicon Valley Bank collapse or crisis that actually put a lot of companies operating in this space in a difficult position until the federal government stepped in. But really, we're seeing VC money less and less available. And so there is a big push towards these companies to be profitable now, or at least to have tighter economics in a space in which buyers of the services are also feeling economic pressure. And at the same time, we have seen this big backlash on voluntary carbon markets. So it's not an easy time to be doing this. But at the same time, the signal is clear that there's something that we need to do, that the, the world needs, and that we need to continue to find ways of doing it. I have a long-term optimistic view of this market and the technology that is coming into this market. So not just ours, but also of others. I have a sense that in the short term, it is choppy. And I think it's very important that people are thoughtful about how they deploy resources and capital. You mentioned the voluntary carbon markets just now. It strikes me that this sort of technology could be very useful for those markets in really bringing scale and integrity. Is that an area that you think is going to develop? Yeah, I think that it's an area where today the voluntary carbon markets by and large still operates. Notwithstanding all the investment that has been in climate tech companies, and we've seen the rise of the carbon raters, we've seen a lot of investment in new digital MRV companies, but the market itself still operates fundamentally on 1990s technology. When we actually look at the MRV, I'm talking about forest carbon here. I'm not talking about the other elements of it, but the one we look at, which is fundamentally the modifying the trajectory of emissions or sequestration in vegetation. A lot of the methodologies that have been designed with, you know, safe and trusted, if you want, technology, technological approaches where there's very little space for automation. There's very little space still for AI or machine learning to play a role where we're still very much relying on emission factors, land use, land cover change. Now, people have been doing land use, land cover change with remote sensing for 40 years. And there is a big shift of which we are part towards direct estimation of carbon storage, as there is shift, for example, of direct estimation of emission from methane through satellites and so on. There's a lot of new technologies developing. The methodologies need to mature and incorporate those approaches. Even some of the new methodologies still, for example, require human interpretation of images in order to detect the deforestation, which is something that obviously at very large scale, it's best done using artificial intelligence or convolution neural networks or all sorts of big data technology rather than having somebody popping up images on the screen. Yes, it's a forest. No, it's not a forest and so on, like little dots. But the market is still doing that. There's been a lot of pressure I think probably your listener know on avoided deforestation, especially in how baselines have been set that have created this drop in confidence in the market. There's been a shift towards removals, especially towards afforestation and reforestation. I think the pendulum will swing. I think we'll realize that afforestation and reforestation is not something that we shouldn't do. Ecosystem restoration is important. Restoration is important, but it's plagued by a number of other issues that are currently underappreciated, I think, by some market participants, issues that have to do with equity of land access, of true additionality, of permanence, 
of what is done. And to some extent, there is this perception that removals and so reforestation projects are better than avoided deforestation projects. I would say that if you can see what the atmosphere sees, if you have good, reliable understanding and estimation of carbon dynamics on land, they are not better necessarily. They can be, but you can have better afforestation projects than avoided deforestation projects. You can have better avoided deforestation project or, or avoided degradation project, because we know that degradation is a big component of the emissions that are coming from land use practices. Then you have afforestation, reforestation projects. And so I think what we really need is a maturing of the methodologies alongside the technology and catching up with the technological stack. Without being overly optimistic about what the technology can do, I mean, obviously, we want to validate and verify that technology can deliver what it's promising when we look about the environmental integrity and the digital MRV. Today, we start to have the ability to do that at very large scale. We were just able to run an entire state fundamentally in a matter of hours, entire Brazilian states, a million of hectares in a matter of hours and do 20 years above ground biomass stock and change. So this is the speed that this now can happen, which through the building of dedicated cloud-based computing software and so on, something that 10 years ago or even five years ago or even two years ago probably was not possible, was a lot harder to do. And this is now possible at operational scale with data that has this, the resolution that it's providing the same kind of insight that you provide for jurisdictional-based accounting with the same resolution that you would use for project-based accounting so that if you're doing nesting between jurisdiction and projects, you're actually using the same approach at the two levels for measuring, and you don't have a measuring mismatch. I think it's an exciting time. Let's talk a bit about the business case here for all of this. How is the business case evolving? You're talking about all these different, clearly incentives are very, very important for different parts of the value chain, but how are you seeing the business case for conservation of nature evolving? In the short term, of course, we're seeing this pressure of the economic spacing we're in today. At the same time, it's becoming incredibly evident that continued exploitation of national capital is not something that we can continue to do, that we're in the face of the outcomes and the impacts of climate change, biodiversity loss, they're happening today, they're happening in serious ways. And so I think the macroeconomic and the overarching policy rationale for these interventions is becoming stronger and stronger every day. There is a raising in awareness and interest from government and business and civil society, but increasingly also from business into the issue of the conservation of nature, the restoration of nature. So we don't necessarily are stuck in a carbon world only anymore, although carbon is something that it's easier to measure and it's more fungible because a ton of carbon is a ton of carbon is a ton of carbon to a certain degree, but definitely more than like a whatever of biodiversity is. Right, You can't swap pangolins for uh, nematodes. It doesn't have the same fungibility. The business case is getting stronger. At the same time, we're still struggling to figure out how to create the right incentive system. There's been a long conversation about finance for nature and how do we finance protection and restoration of biodiversity. So there's an interesting increase of funds and initiatives to do that. 
but where the rubber hits the road where basically people then are asked to do work and so how do you pay for that work i think people are still struggling to find the finance that they want in a number of cases and so the willingness to pay for the information is not very high this is something that if you work with remote sensing is very very clear because today especially with the new sensors especially the high resolution imagery which is fundamentally priced on the willingness to pay of the defense industry we're basically talking about two very very different use cases with very very different willingness to pay and so often struggling to actually deploy that technology into the nature analytics space there's a lot of emerging models that are different so the merging of carbon and biodiversity the the underlying business case is strong and the growth is going to continue it is going to be choppy right there's a lot of decisions that are policy based and it will cause starts and stops in the eu deforestation law it's a big one on deforestation monitoring clearly but we'll have to see how that plays out the gag accounting science based targets for nature disclosure requirements and so on all those things are going into the right direction to the extent where immediately they will cause like a nice growth of this market that's not what is happening at least from where we sit in that's not what we're seeing I wanted to ask about some of your thoughts on changing policy and regulation what do you think is helpful in terms of the right sort of regulation I mean you've touched on the EU due diligence requirements around uh, deforestation is it helpful as ever I guess law of unintended consequences is always in play unintended consequences are probably always in play and I think that some of the issues that they have are probably more to do with the way things will work for the agricultural sector and uh, for smallholder farmers and the inclusion of smallholder farmer in sustainability processes and the risk of creating two speed markets and so on these are all issues that clearly exist and that they'll need to be addressed i'll speak maybe to the angle of somebody who's actually trying to provide the market with data and i think that the work that needs to be done around standardizing and clarifying how do you actually collect and report the information about what you're trying to measure it's an important piece of this it's going to take time and work to create the right frameworks especially frameworks that don't get stuck don't crystallize the reporting technology at the point in time and then become obsolete but something that allows everybody to participate with the capacity that they have today but with a ratcheting approach to improving the reporting as the capabilities the technological capabilities increase and also the cost drops i mean one of the things that we know is that this cannot be unbearably burdensome and it's problematic if it gets all pushed on producers especially for the smallest producers there are scale effects if you're building systems to automatically for example in user remote sensing information or other sources of data you'd need a certain scale for these things to actually really operate in an effective reliable manner at a price point that can be carried by the market and so coordination between players and clear signals to market participants like us of where are you going and how can we serve you with something that is effective is going to be very helpful. Yes, I guess as ever clarity is king in all these matters. Let's talk a bit about carbon accounting. How is best practice understanding of carbon accounting developing and why in particular is being able to measure both carbon gains and reductions important? 
Yeah, this is critical because when we look at terrestrial carbon, especially forest carbon, you know, we come from a world in which we fundamentally measured changes in forest area and not changes in carbon storage. And then we applied an emission factor to changes in forest area that has a series of limitations in, in actually having reliable carbon accounting. One is that, of course, it doesn't allow you to measure anything that doesn't change the forest area. And so the remaining forest can change its carbon stock by degradation, by growth, but that doesn't get captured. And the other thing is that these processes, the processes of changes in forest cover and forest area are, are not random and they won't hit different kind of forests with different level of carbon storage randomly. So technology now allows us to measure directly changes in carbon store in vegetation, allows us to map carbon storage in vegetation with you know a reasonable accuracy and accuracy that can continuously improve. This is something that we're seeing now, for example, with the prevalence of forest fires, how the earth system is basically reacting to the changes that are happening in the climate and how natural disturbance, human-induced disturbance is actually moving large masses of carbon from terrestrial pools to the atmosphere and being able to keep track of that and all the processes that are happening there is going to be increasingly important. In the end, what matters is what happens to the atmosphere as far as carbon accounting goes, the way the carbon is stored and whether we're preserving, for example, the highest carbon stocks, which also often have the highest biodiversity value, also matters. Measuring carbon storage and changes in carbon storage more accurately, I think, will also allow us to be better at understanding the biodiversity co-benefits or the potential trade-offs between the carbon lever and the biodiversity lever when designing efforts in changing the trajectory of landscapes. Do you think then that getting understanding of carbon, is that the best proxy for biodiversity impact? Are there other ways or better ways to account for biodiversity? I think that there are interesting other ways to account for biodiversity. Uh, I think carbon storage and carbon density it's a very interesting piece of information. It's biomass. The more biomass generally means that there is more structural diversity. It means that more species might be able to sustain themselves. The ecosystem is more productive, especially the trajectory of the biomass change is quite insightful. It's not the only one. We have eDNA, for example, for biodiversity monitoring structural diversity, horizontal in the landscape, assessing whether, for example, corridors are maintained, minimum size of certain habitats for species, and in the end, individual species tracking and monitoring might be what we need. I mean, this is where we're going to this whole complexity of how do you measure and monitor biodiversity, because it's not just one thing. I mean, it's a synthetic concept, but depending where you are, and what you're concerned about, your concern might be on some specific subset of the species that you're tracking. I mean, I'm not a biodiversity expert. It seems to me that what the biomass monitoring provides, it's an important piece of the puzzle that can complement other approaches in a more holistic view of what's happening in the landscapes. But it definitely has a lot of potential. You mentioned eDNA. Could you just outline what that is, please? These are technologies where fundamentally the environment is sample for presence of DNA of certain species. 
there are companies like Nature Metrics that, for example, have advanced these technologies. And so there's a variety of approaches and technical innovation that is happening around these issues. And that it's a very interesting one if you're interested in very rare stuff that it's very hard to see otherwise directly. I mean, people used to put photo traps or try to detect presence by sampling. That's an approach that basically allows for finding the traces of the DNA of a certain species in the environment. But I mean, again, I'm not an expert in this. What I think it is, is that something that complement goes at this issue from a very, very different way that we do because, and everybody else works like us. So basically fundamentally mapping vegetation, mapping trees, mapping biomass or land cover types, and gives you a sense of the extent and dimension and complexity and interaction of different ecosystems versus one that were basically you're really starting to detect the presence of absence of specific species. Hyperspectral remote sensing is very interesting. There's a number of hyperspectral sensors and constellation that are being planned or launched. And these are satellites, optical satellites that slice the light in finer and finer bands so that you're now able to see things in many, many more colors than, than what we're able to see with the human eye. And that allows to differentiate, for example, be- between different species of trees and so allow you to map the species abundance of trees in a way that you're normally not able to, with multispectral scanners, which are the most common optical scanners. So those are other opportunities that are coming online. What these new sensors don't have is, is of course, the yet is the fact that they can't go back, right? What we're trying to do, creating reliable baselines, means also reconstructing the past. That's an important piece of work. And that's where we have had Earth observation satellites of various types operating for many, many years now, many decades. I mean, the last mission of NASA has been operating since the 1970s. So we do have an extensive archive of information and being able to mine that archive and use it effectively to reconstruct the trajectory of uh, the ecosystems we're interested in is incredibly helpful. Time travel aside then, what other technology advancements do you see coming up? What I see is that the distribution of computing has made this ability to process data at very large scale, very fast, increasingly cost-effectively as a critical contribution to this. I see the democratization of those capabilities, the fact that we're going to be able to put a series of what today are complex remote sensing tasks So let's say mapping biomass, mapping canopy height, mapping forest types, forest cover change, deforestation, and so on, that is done only in certain labs with people who have highly specialized to put these workflows in the hands of companies, but especially also in the hands of governments everywhere, and being able to do that with much more reliably, effectively, and timely it's a major revolution, which means that we'll actually have that abundance of insight and so transparency of what's going on that so far we have been talking about, but it's really not super clear. I mean, this is a reason why we've had this emergence of carbon credit rating companies, because, you know, what's under the hood there? And it's not that straightforward. And it still isn't, right? It's still a complex business, like to actually understand what is going on 
not just to look at a picture on Google Earth, but to actually understand what's going on in time, it still takes a lot of work. The advances in analytics and in parallel computing are going to put this in the hands of more and more people so that they can actually do their own analysis. And this is an exciting evolution because it means that we will be able to have different layers of digital monitoring and digital reporting of what's happening in, in landscapes, in supply sheds, and so on, in a way that we didn't have before. It certainly is an exciting time, and it's you know it's great to see so many solutions emerging. Uh, companies are desperate for solutions, but it's not interesting to see them as they come down the line. Let's come back and talk about what's going to be coming down the line next time, perhaps. But for now, Marco Albani from Chloris Geospatial, thanks so much indeed. Thank you, Ian. Yeah.